Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Last December, we had fun remembering conversations we had with Connecticut's own Chrissy Tracy and pizza historian Colin Kaplan. And we shared moments from our time with megastars Ina Garten and Marcus Samuelson. We've talked to a lot of movers and shakers in the food world since then. And we're starting a new tradition of sharing some of our favorite conversations over the past year, before the ball drops in Times Square. Speaking of Times Square, the first conversation we want to listen back to is with the baker known on Instagram as Foodie in New York. In October, we talked to lawyer-turned-baker Valerie Lomas about how she turned a major disappointment into a triumph of a cookbook. Her book is Life is What You Bake It, Recipes, Stories, and Inspiration to Bake Your Way to the Top. Before we get into baking tips and recipes, Valerie talked to us about the inspiration for the book. I knew that I wanted to share heirloom recipes that have been passed down in my family, while also having a chance to share my story, what I've gone through on this journey from being a lawyer to becoming a baker full-time and a food person full-time. You know, it was really important that this book contained like recipes that people can make at home, whether they're a novice or someone, you know, that wants a, a project. And I wanted there to be really dynamic photography of the dishes, of the food, but also of people. Because, you know, when I think about baking and when I think about food, it's about community. So I wanted people to feel that when they opened the book. Valerie, I've I've known a lot of different chefs in my life, a lot of different bakers in my life. And I got to say, I've never met a baker or a chef who was previously a lawyer. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. I needed an outlet to express myself creatively. Legal writing, it's there's one way to do things. I just needed to give my brain a break. So baking and cooking, it's it was meditative for me. Wait a minute. You're telling me that there's no creativity in being a lawyer? I've watched The Practice. I've watched <laughs> Boston Legal. Come on. <laughs> I was going to say, Valerie, you went from tort to tart. Yes. Yes. <laughs> nice. Apologies to all of my former law professors. I love this. So you decide that you're going to make a complete 180 or what I think of as a 180 because I cannot tell you that I, I associate law with baking. How does that figure on the trajectory of your life? I do think it was a complete 180 because I felt like I was starting from scratch. A little bit of background. I competed on the Great American Baking Show in 2017. I won. And about five or six months later, I was sitting in my cubicle at work and I was like, hey, I want to write a cookbook. There's so much more that I want to do in the food world and the baking world. It's how I spent my time, nights, mornings, weekends. I had a very pitiful social life. <laughs> I knew I wanted to give myself a chance. So, you know, I had been working as a lawyer for eight years and I finally decided I'm going to take the plunge. And, you know, there's a saying, leap and the net will appear. And it was after I made that decision that things started falling into place. You talked before about uh, giving your brain a rest from being a lawyer and all that, choosing French 
baking is uh, there's not much of a brain rest there at all. <laughs> I mean, so it it was for me because I had stayed abroad in France twice as an undergrad. So I spent a summer in Dijon and I spent a semester in Paris. And that's when I was introduced to this whole other world of baking because I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There's a very strong food tradition and baking tradition there mm -hmm. and a lot of French influence. But it's very different from like modern day French pastry. So, you know, growing up, we were eating like pecan pie and peach cobbler and pound cake, all of those desserts, which they're wonderful, but they are very different than French desserts, which are more dainty and they're not very sweet. You know, they have a completely different aesthetic. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to France, I fell in love with this whole new style, and I was able to kind of like create my own where. You know, I'm making pecan pie, but like maybe I'm adding a little bit more bourbon or I'm toasting the pecans to bring out those like umami and bitter flavors so that you're not overwhelmed with sweetness. Valerie, I wonder if you wouldn't mind going back to the experience on The Great American Baking Show, because part mm -hmm. of what is so special about this show season is that we realize that people in the culinary world are more than just the sum of their parts. And it is not lost on me that you are a woman of color, that you are a black woman. Um, who is foraging her way. And something that really hit home for me was a quotation from the book or from your life, which is, my victory, like so many accomplishments of Black women who came before me, had been effectively erased. And that is talking about what happened on your particular season of The Great American Baking Show, which that season was canceled because of sexual misconduct. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us about how that experience steeled you in moving forward. Yeah. And what sort of effect it had on you. The season that I was on, we filmed it in September in London. And then a month or two later, the Me Too movement really picked up steam. And by December, the week after our premiere aired, you know, allegations against one of the judges came out about sexual misconduct. And when they chose to, remove the show from the air because of this judge, I was like the same thing that fueled me to get through that competition. And the same thing that like fueled me through the bar exam. It was like I tapped into that extra gear that I had. And I was like, well, this isn't the end of this. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that all of the work that I put in and that others put in doesn't just disappear into thin air. So I was always thinking that like, I cannot melt into a puddle, even though I want to. <laughs> you just have to keep moving ahead. That's great. I love baking things like quick breads in the fall. It's one of my favorite things, you know, uh, banana bread, pumpkin bread, pumpkin loaf. Any tips for doing stuff like that? Oh, I love that you said this because I was like, you know what? Last year was the year of banana bread. Let's make this year and this fall the year of pumpkin bread because it's just as easy. Yeah, it's just as delicious. No one really wants a pumpkin spice latte. It's like drinking a fall candle. It's gross. Yeah, and there's no pumpkin in it, whereas pumpkin bread has real pumpkin in it. So you're still getting those warm, fall, spicy flavors. And like, as far as tips... Um, when you're baking like a loaf like that, you want to make sure that you bake it long enough because those loaves, they can be deceiving. Your house will smell like, oh, goodness, fall, warm, yummy. And if you take it out without sticking that cake tester 
or even like a skewer all the way deep in the center of that loaf, mm -hmm. uh, it can be not done in the middle. So I would say you want that loaf to still be moist. So you don't want to overdo it, but make sure it's cooked all the way through because they can be a little bit deceiving as to whether or not they're done. That's a good tip. Yeah, absolutely. Toothpicks, skewers, anything. You can use a little butter knife even works fine. Yeah. Yes. I love me a good biscuit. And you have an accordion biscuit situation. Like I said, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Like I love biscuits. I've had them all of my life. I expect good biscuits. And, you know, in this recipe that I share, I wanted people to get all of those layers in the biscuits, which is where the name accordion biscuit came from. Plus, you know, I, I tell this story of, you know, my dad and his grandmother making him and his brothers like bottomless biscuits. And when I, you know, when I think about South Louisiana, I think about Zydeco music and there's that accordion playing in the background. Yeah, yeah. And this just goes to show you like little bits you pick up along the way. When I was laminating dough in France, which is like a very serious process, I kind of use that same technique for my biscuits, which is just kind of patting the dough down with those chunks of butter, cutting it in half, stacking it on top, and just kind of repeating that a few times. And it just helps getting those layer, those gorgeous layers. It makes them a lot easier. You can do the same thing with pie crust. Another important thing about biscuits, similar to pie crust, you want that dough to be really cold going into the oven. If you make them in advance and you freeze them, it's perfect because then if you just want to have like two or three or four, you can easily just bake some of them and then you have some ready to go. I love a good backstory. And these biscuits in your life figure quite prominently because of the women in your life. Can you can you tell us about that? Yeah. Who you're paying homage to, who who you're thinking of when you bake your, your biscuits? Yeah. So, um, you know, a, a little bit about what we were saying earlier in the convo about, you know, me thinking about the many Black women who came before me and how their contributions in this instance in the culinary world, how they did not get that credit. That's why one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure I was paying homage to my grandmothers, my mother, and in the instance, instance of the biscuits, my great grandmother, because she is the one who made these biscuits for my dad, for his brothers. She taught my grandmother these biscuits. And then I watched my grandmother make these biscuits. The thing about biscuits is I don't think of them as a recipe to memorize. They're like a tactile thing. And it's something that I call it, it's a biscuit practice, like a yoga practice or a meditation practice. It's something that you keep doing and you keep getting better at. You keep learning something and it's tactile. You want to feel like what it's supposed to feel like. So yes, like my recipe is a little bit different than my grandmother's, but the heart of like what that biscuit is supposed to be is the same. I grew up in Virginia and my dad would make biscuits too, but he would call them cat heads and they're essentially a drop biscuit, you know, mm. so it wasn't all a layer, but it was a simple, easy drop biscuit where you spoon out and just drop it on the pan and let it go, you know, butter, you cut the butter and the flour and a little baking powder and it's delicious, but I'm sure as an expert biscuit maker like yourself, that's unheard of. Don't do that, right? Oh, no, no, no. I love a drop biscuit. Let's not get it twisted. I like all kinds of biscuits. Yeah, the, the accordion biscuit recipe, you got to get your hands dirty, like literally you're, you're patting down dough and, right. and all that kind of stuff. But you know what, if a drop biscuit is going to get you to put on, you know, your, your biscuit making whatever, and you feel into it and ready, I love it. I've made them many times. I've made a drop biscuit, so I, I'm not mad at your drop biscuit. 
it's great for a, a, a savory application too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you do like the, the herbs and the cheddar and all that jazz? Oh, you'd name it. Oh yeah. I've even served it with uh, a little bit of uh, like raw sashimi fish. And then I've done them where I actually make like a chicken pot pie, but then pour it over a drop biscuit. Oh my goodness, that sounds real good. <laughs> a pot roast with all that jus over top of beautiful drop biscuit on a cold winter Sunday. That's awesome. Ooh, that sounds nice. Ooh. Hi, I love that. I, admittedly, I've I've never tried making biscuits. <gasps> I have to do oh, this. You, you, you would crush a biscuit. I know. Can I call you guys? Can you walk me through it <laughs> on like FaceTime or oh, something? Totally. Because clearly I'm not inviting Valerie over to my house unless my biscuit game is tight. Got to be on point. Otherwise she will chastise Listen, me. if you, <laughs> when people cook for me, make me drinks, coffee, anything, I love that. And everybody knows every good baker has a go-to chocolate chip cookie recipe. You might be asking, does the world need another chocolate chip cookie recipe? And the answer is yes. It <laughs> needs this one. You need this one. That delicate EVOO flavor it just kind of permeates through and there's just enough butter so that like you're getting the best of all the world. They're like a little bit crispy on the outside, chewy in the center, and they're super simple to make. Sold. If you want to like bring something to someone's home, what's better than a cookie? Like a layered cake is cute and all. I think if people are coming to your house, who wants to travel with a layered cake? I don't. No one. <laughs> Where does your affinity and love for donuts come from? So I grew up just like mesmerized in a trance by the little Krispy Kreme conveyor belt. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I love those donuts. Honestly, it was going on the Great American Baking Show where we had to make donuts for a challenge. And I was like, well, I guess I have to learn donuts unless I want to go home the second week. But I made so many donuts that I figured it out. Now, when you did it on the show, were you using a, like a yeast leaven donut or was it like a cake yeah. donut? How were you doing it? Yeah, we had to do, I think it was like two dozen yeast-raised donuts in two and a half hours or something. In the book, you talk about preaching to people, don't be afraid of yeast. Yeast is your friend. I think people, they do get intimidated by yeast. Yeast is wonderful. It's just asleep. We have to wake it up. That's right. And we can't kill it. So <laughs> there are only a few ways to kill it, like salt, really high temperatures, befriend, befriend the yeast. And what she's talking about with, with waking the yeast up is when you get in those little packets, it's, it's lying dormant. So you have to wake it up by basically feeding it. Mm -hmm. And it loves to eat sugar. And when it's eating that sugar, the byproduct it makes is carbon dioxide, which is what leavens a dough. Because that carbon dioxide can't escape. So it pushes the dough up and makes those beautiful little bubbles in there. And then it starts to burp. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, I also, I talk about instant yeast in the book because you can use it and you can skip that step of like adding warm liquid and letting it sit for 10 minutes to get foamy. You can just add it with your dry ingredients. Let's talk about pound cake for a minute. I, I love making pound cake. You know, traditional pound cake, it's called a pound cake because it was what, a pound of sugar, a pound of flour, butter. and a pound of butter or eggs? I can't remember. Both. Was it butter? Yeah. Eggs yeah. and butter. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was one pound. So we call it a pound cake. And I think it's kind of making a, a comeback here. We start to see pound cake all over the place, even on menus now. Yeah. And, you know, so I've got a pound cake on the cover of my book. My dad, he told me, he was like, every Southern woman knows how to make a good pound cake. And I was like, okay, dad. <laughs> I was like, I guess I guess I'm a, a good Southern woman now. But yeah, so this recipe is actually, uh, it's based off of a recipe that my mom always made. And it uses cream cheese. Oh, it's, it's like dense in the way you want a pound cake to be. And it has this like crusty exterior and this very tender crumb. 
and a very simple vanilla, creamy vanilla glaze on top. It is an easy cake to make as far as cakes go. And they're beautiful and they're not a layer cake. So you don't have to worry about stacking them and fussing around with buttercream. You can bake them in a, a bunt pan, which is gorgeous. You have something that tastes amazing and it's just not a lot of fuss. Yeah. I was just looking at the cover. When I, I started this conversation with you, I said it was literally one of the most beautiful cookbooks I had ever seen. I loved seeing a cookbook with real people, real women of color. It just, it made me excited about wanting to cook something. You know, I can get lost in the Cooks Illustrated of the world and look at the science, but the pages of your cookbook just reminded me of home. It reminded me of like real people in, in my own life. So what was that process like quickly in these last few minutes we have? Baking is something that you do for other people. So the idea that there wouldn't be any people in the book or it would just be me like showing technical things, to me, that just wasn't what the book was about. It's about family, community, friendship. So I'm so glad that resonated with you. And as you were talking, I like got a little teary almost because that's what I want people to feel with the book and to feel a connection to these recipes that's deeper than just like the taste and the texture and the flavor. Like, I feel like when you have that full experience, you're going to experience it on a different sensory level. That was Valerie Lomas. Her cookbook is Life is What You Bake It. And you can experience those olive oil chocolate chunk cookies yourself. The recipe is at ctpublic.org recipes. Later in the hour, another really inspiring local guest we loved. We listen back to our conversation with Chef Van Lai. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, feeding time at the Beardsley Zoo. We talk to zoo educators about what our animal friends are eating. Similar to children, they don't want to eat a lot of veggies, so you kind of have to trick them. If they want the fruit, they got to eat the greens and they got to eat the veggies. This is Seasons. We'll be right back. Back to season, I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Today we're looking back at some of our favorite shows of 2021. You know, usually on the show we're talking with cookbook authors, farmers, or chefs about the ways they work with food. We've done quite a bit of that over Zoom this past year. But whenever we get the chance, we like to take out our microphones out into the wild, wild world and talk to people in their element. We visited Hogan Cider Mill in Burlington, West End Farmer's Market in Hartford, Farming 101, that's a tomato farm in Newtown. I got to see the giant smokers in action at the Hummel Hot Dog Factory in New Haven and sample the latkes at the Crown Market in West Hartford. One of our favorite seasoned field trips happened this past summer when we recorded a show at Connecticut's Beardsley Zoo. We learned so much about what animals eat from talking with Jim Knox, he's the curator of education at the zoo, and zoo educator Chrissy Shore. The Beardsley Zoo is home to 350 exotic animals and wildlife, and their caretakers prepare more than 200 individual animal diets each and every day. That's a lot of food. Meat, fish, mice, fruit, veggies, worms, insects, and biscuits. We'll start by the zoo's commissary, 
Now, the commissary looks a little like a fast food drive through from the outside. Inside is a very clean, professional-looking kitchen with steel tables set up for safe food prep, fridges, and lots of counter space for chopping. We meet Chrissy outside, where she explains a bit about what she does at the zoo. Then we'll put a mic up to the commissary window and talk while Chrissy chops a salad for the zoo's blue-tongued skinks and bearded dragons. All right, so I work with the ambassador animals here at the zoo, which means I do their daily care. Um, I do their diet prep, which we're going to talk about a little later. I do their training, enrichment. I give programs, talk to the public, train staff on how to work with the animals. So a little bit of everything. What's an ambassador animal? So an ambassador animal is an animal that teaches the public or schools or we go to senior homes just why their species is important, why animals are important, and why people should care about the planet. Can you give us an example of an ambassador animal? Absolutely. We have so many ambassador animals. We have lots of reptiles, raptors. We have a bobcat. We have parrots. We have cockroaches. We have crickets. We have just a little bit of everything. What would someone be surprised to know about what you do here at the zoo? People are often surprised by how down and dirty we get, often covered in everything from some greens for making diets to some poop to some dirt. You just never know what you're going to get covered in here. So I've been coming to this zoo with my little ones yep. since they were very, very tiny, and we love the zoo. It's amazing. I love how all the animals have names. They're all, yes. They all have names. So like, it's like, I don't want to say pets, but they all have names. So, but that kind of shows how well they're cared for. Oh, yeah. And it shows them also the food that they eat. Can you talk about the quality of the food just as a whole? Oh, yeah. We get food better than I eat at my house. Um, so we always joke that the keepers eat worse than the animals because we're eating chips and Oreos and terrible stuff. And then we spend all this time prepping nutritionally sound diets with supplements and making sure everyone gets exactly uh, what they need in their diet. So they definitely get better food than we eat. <laughs> Can you give us an example of some of the stuff they eat? Yeah, so uh, depending upon what animals you have, I mean, we have a bobcat that gets a prepared horse meat diet um, along with other food enrichment items like uh, whole prey items. You're going to see me make a reptile diet, and that's different greens and veggies and fruit. We have a macaw you might meet later that gets a prepared biscuit diet and cooked veggies, cooked fruit, seeds, nuts. So they get a little bit of everything. Yeah, half the reason I want to come here, Marisol, is because I have a, a dinner coming up. I need some great dinner <laughs> ideas to serve. We got some of recipes course. for you. Yeah, uh, of Maybe we'll leave the supplements out. You might not need extra calcium. But, gotcha. You know. So we're standing now in front of, there's a big window here, and there's like a dish tank back there, yep. uh, triple sinks, and lots of tables. It looks very much like a kitchen yes. back here. Is, this, is that what this is? That is our commissary. So it's our kitchen. We have a couple different tables, so we can prep different diets all at once. Um, some zoos have a commissary keeper that makes all the diets. We actually, every area makes their own diets, um, which I personally like. I like seeing exactly what the animals I'm taking care of are getting, and then I can see um, how they like it or whatnot. I really enjoy the full aspect of doing that. How do you know what the animals want to eat? Or are you just like, I know this is good for you, so this is what you're going to eat? A little bit of both. So our diets are formulated by vet staff um, and talking to other zoos about what the animals should be eating. Um, and then there's a little bit of what will they eat. And sometimes it's something crazy like the macaw won't eat the banana unless you leave the peel on. So there's a lot of trial and error to figure huh. out exactly how to get them to eat um, what they eat. And our reptile diet, we have to chop very, very finely because... Similar to children, they don't want to eat a lot of veggies, so you kind of have to trick them. If they want the fruit, they got to eat the greens and they got to eat the veggies. Wow. So it's a, a little crazy. column A, little column B. They're definitely getting what they scientifically need, but sometimes we have to get a little creative about how to get them to eat it. Do they ever get sent to bed without their dessert <laughs> because they have not 
finished their oh, supper. Oh, without their desserts, absolutely. But never without their dinner. <laughs> they always get what they need. <laughs> you know, the chef in me is just sitting here listening to this conversation, Marisol, and I'm thinking, if I was in here, like, everyone's thinks it sounds gross, but like the chef, I could, I'm going to taste it. I want to see if yeah. it tastes good. Like, if, why wouldn't they eat it? Maybe I should taste it. Maybe I could do something different to it. Oh, yeah. Does it need more seasoning? Does this food get seasoned at all? Do you salt it? Do nope, you, no seasoning. I mean, I'm not saying you're putting chili powder on it, but like... No, no seasoning. I mean, I assume some of the biscuit diets have something in them but not really salt or anything like that they get that from other sources i love that this is like i'm like the fifth grader here and i'm like do you guys eat the <laughs> yeah. food do you guys do it i will say when you're really hungry and you're making delicious salad it does look really good I not so it. much the meat diets can we watch you guys prepare something in here absolutely so i'll go around and i'm gonna make a reptile diet it'll be for our blue tongue skink and our bearded dragon today jim can answer any questions if you have them because he's familiar with the diet and i'll come back out after sounds great cool at this point, Chrissy heads into the commissary and Jim Knox joins us at the commissary window, which kind of reminded us of a drive through as we talk with Chrissy about reptile diets. Hi, I'd like a vanilla milkshake, <laughs> large fries, um, and I would like the car for my gift, my toy. Oh, okay? nice. Okay, sorry. All right, have at it, sister. So today I'm making the Monday, Wednesday, Friday reptile diet. Um, which is for our skink, our blue tongue skink and our bearded dragon. So I need 90 grams of greens. I'm gonna try to give them a variety. Now the greens she's talking about here, Marisol, if you look, it's a salad. I mean, there's, that's, that's red leaf lettuce. It looks like romaine hearts. Romaine. Maybe some kale. How about that? I mean, this looks like a great salad that I would eat. No kidding. Yes, I eat salads. I don't believe you. <laughs> Chrissy, who taught you to chop? Uh, doing it here a lot. Excellent. <laughs> chef, how's she, how she doing, I'll, Chef? I'll, uh, cut my own greens too. Our small. knife skills are a 10 in my book. <laughs> wow, that's a compliment. <laughs> so we're just dicing up. You're really just chopping up this lettuce into small bits because is this some of the lettuce you have to hide? Well, yeah, I mean, wouldn't you eat just fruit if you could? So I'm trying to make sure they get a little bit of everything. Absolutely. Now, Jim, can we ask you, uh, the blue tongue skink, is this a large animal, a small animal? He's a pretty big lizard. Uh, he is about uh, 22 inches long, so he's a stocky-bodied guy. And um, they're native to Australia, New Guinea, forest dwellers, omnivores. So this is, uh, he's gonna be very excited about this diet. So he'll, he'll like this a lot. This is delicious for him. But how big is the portion size on something like this for him, being Chris, the size that he is? Chrissy can tell you in terms of actual grams, this is my creative way of saying I don't know. So you guys are gonna have to you guys are gonna have to edit that, but at least I have cred, right? At least you guys say he knows. He's, yeah. he's just, gonna get 70 grams. Thank you, Chris. And then he's gonna Save get me. extra fruit. So skinks need a little more fruit than bearded dragons. So after I make the salad all together, I'm gonna add fruit to the skink so he gets the fruit he needs. Interesting. I mean there's a whole tub of stuff to chop up here. This is a lot of knife work. Have you guys ever heard of a Robocoop? <laughs> I mean, we get good with knives. <laughs> um, and I have some cooked veggies. I already cooked them, so we didn't have okay. to sit in here and wait. So you, have, you said you had cooked veggies. Yeah. Now, how do you, could you steaming them, just boil them? What do you do I to them? I always steam them in the microwave. Okay. Basically. What are you slicing right now? Uh, we have sweet potato and carrots. Excellent. So we just cook them up so they're a little softer and easier to eat. I mean, this is a super healthy diet here. Absolutely. Very. And I would, full disclosure, I would eat a salad that contains all of these things. Yeah. I think most people would. I mean, it looks delicious. I would definitely eat this as well. My question is, though, it's not like these these blue tailed tailed tongue blue tongue skinks have a microwave out in the wild. Correct. 
So why do we microwave the vegetables? Well, you know, we can't exactly replicate what they would get in the wild, so we're just doing our best with what we have. Okay. And so sweet potato and carrot are pretty hard, tough veggies, and we want him to eat it, so we're trying to make them as palatable as possible. That's great. And now you're getting after a kiwi. Yep, I'm doing a little bit oh, of fruit. And an apple. Just to give them a good variety. And the same thing, I'm gonna chop it up really small for them. And everything's being weighed on a scale right there, yeah. so we can get the perfect amount of food. Is that the idea? Yep, absolutely. You don't want anyone getting too chubby off salad. That would be tragic. <laughs> Far be it from me to know how a blue-tongued skink eats, but what is this process? Do you put it out in the middle of a habitat? Yep, so he has a little habitat, and we put it in, there's two bowls here, so the flat pan is his. And actually, his favorite thing to do is lay in it while he eats it. Um, I mean, he loves to scatter it all over too. his habitat. So I always joke I make the comfiest salads. <laughs> he just has to climb in. You know, it's very similar to how I eat chicken wings. I put them in a kiddie pool. I lay down in them. Perfect. That way I can just eat them and toss Excellent. them. Excellent. So I'm cutting up a little bit of red bell pepper, which I'm calling enrichment for the day for them. Um, it's just a little extra veggie make their salad look a little prettier. And fun fact, bearded dragons love red food. Weird. And our bearded dragon is not very good at eating her salad. Oh. So I often try to trick her a little by putting some red on top I so that she might see. give it a little try. You said this is enrichment, so yes. that means you're adding like something different, something different that wouldn't be in there yesterday. Yep, and um, we do all kinds of enrichment. Food enrichment is just one type, but that's the type we're doing right now. Okay. That's so really interesting. So now the salad's done, I'm gonna weigh it out so that each animal gets the proper amount. So it's a giant bowl. It looks like a big dog bowl to me, or a big yeah, stainless steel does. bowl. Yeah, it does. Mixed it up chopped like... lettuce, carrots, a little bit of that uh, sweet potato in there, weighed out on the scale into a smaller bowl, which is, I'm guessing, the food dish. Yep, this is what will go in the habitats with them. Let's see if I did my math right. Close enough. We'll buy that for a dollar. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it actually looks like a great salad that you would get at like... It looks like a chopped salad. Like 11 Madison Park. This looks great. I think yeah. she's almost there. She yeah. is one red bell pepper away from a Michelin star. Well, now we just need a little extra fruit for the skink since he needs extra. Oh, a banana. 10 grams perfectly. It's almost like I do this every day. Fantastic. Listen, when you finish up here, um, I need some help this weekend at work. So if you want to come over... <laughs> I would love that. It'd be really fun. <laughs> this looks amazing. Well, thanks for showing us this. This Absolutely. is fantastic. How many, how many times a day do they eat? Uh, it depends on the animal. So our reptiles only eat once a day. In fact, our blue tongue skink and bearded dragon both only get salad three times a week. The other times they get meat items, so usually bugs. Um, but today's a salad day for them. So. What kind of bugs would it be? Uh, well, it depends. They could get earthworms, they can get crickets, they can get mealworms, superworms. Um, they can eat sometimes roaches, so... It depends. depends what's on sale at Costco. Oh, I guess so, right? What they can get in bulk from... Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that, that's a great looking salad. I'll have that. Might as well, you can have the worms. I mean, Thank you might you. have to fight the reptiles for it. <laughs> <laughs> that was Chrissy Shore. She's a zoo educator at the Beardsley Zoo. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, a conversation with one of the most inspiring chefs in our state, Bun Lai. Two things that I'm really passionate about are nature and humans. There's a lot of correlations between biodiversity and nature and human diversity. You're listening to Seasoned. It's our Look Back episode. More to come after the break. 
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plot. Before we start 2022, we wanted to revisit some of our favorite conversations that we had with guests this past year. We learned so much from our guests each week. This past September, we explored wild food and talked with local foragers about the many benefits of foraging and about the plants, berries, and mushrooms they were eating. We were lucky enough to talk with one of the most innovative chefs in the country about foraging and what motivates him to cook and eat the way that he does. Our guest, Bun Lai, is a chef and pioneer of the sustainable food movement. Mia Sushi in New Haven was the first sustainable sushi restaurant in the whole world. It closed in 2020. If you miss it, not to worry. Mia Sushi has become Mia's in the Woods, an educational and culinary experience at Bun's home in Woodbridge. Chef Bun Lai, welcome to Seasoned. Uh, thank you, Marisol and Plum. First of all, for people who don't know what foraging is, what is it exactly? Going outdoors and collecting edible wild plants. It's been a popular pastime for decades now. There's Yield Gibbons who wrote a best-selling book many, many decades ago called Stalking the Wild Asparagus, I think. He was a legitimate celebrity back in those days from a foraging show. And here we are. My food experience starts with foraging. Uh, my mother grew up in the countryside of uh, southern Japan. And uh, back in those days, um, little Japanese girls would stay out of the sun to stay as white colored as possible. But uh, she looked like someone who was a different color altogether, you know. Yeah. So, so she was an outdoor kid. And uh, so was I. And I was often really dark. And uh, people would think that like I'm Polynesian or Hawaiian or Filipino, but I just like to be out all the time. And my mother would take us foraging back in those days. And when she would have a birthday or a special occasion, I would always bring her a burdock that I'd dig up. And it would be so meaningful too, because with burdock, the taproot is sometimes three feet long. Wow. So you got to dig three feet in order to get it. And you have to be patient. I'm ADHD riddled. So my impulse is to dig partly and then give it a tug. <laughs> and you do that and you, you ruin the root because you want to bring this beautiful connected stem, you know. So I've been doing this foraging for a long time prior to uh, even Mia's. So with the closing of Mia Sushi, now we get Mia's in the woods. That's right. Which is kind of a showcase of all of this wonderful foraging around our state that you've done. Part of the reason why I closed Mia's was that I just didn't think that I'd be able to stay healthy and continue working in the way that I was working, uh, especially in a brick and mortar situation. Yeah. My mom had a stroke uh, about eight years ago, and we have very similar go, go, go personalities. We don't know how to turn it off. So I knew that I had to put a break on it. And I tried to imagine myself working in a completely different way where it was restorative for my spirit, for my body as well. I knew the one thing that made me feel great mentally, spiritually, physically was to be outdoors. So I wanted to cook outdoors. We transitioned into doing really intimate events during COVID in the space over here, and much of which is about foraging. Very cool. It's like a pop-up event. Kind of, but there's always something going on here. So the two things that I'm really passionate about are nature and humans. There's a lot of correlations between biodiversity and nature and human diversity. So when you talk about human diversity, it's really uplifting of the society, especially if you uplift the diversity of that society. 
The same thing with uh, nature. The more diverse the plants and animals and microorganisms are in a specific ecosystem, the healthier that ecosystem is as well. So what I do with the cuisine that I've created in Sustainable Sushi is celebrate human diversity along with biodiversity. But both today and uh, throughout time uh, have been attacked. As far as biodiversity, today we're in a period of mass extinction, but this time it's anthropomorphic, it's human created. The last time it was a meteor that caused it. As well, uh, human diversity is, is always being uh, under attack right. for a number of reasons, ideological reasons, but also uh, the encroachment of uh, modern culture. For example, there aren't many hunter-gatherer tribes anymore, and languages are quickly disappearing, um, along with indigenous knowledge, for example. So when I cook, I'm really interested in, for example, like how the Hadza eat. They're the last uh, indigenous culture that is a hunter-gatherer tribe, and they're not going to be around for much longer because um, there's ecotourism that they're a part of now. And as soon as you have contact with us, uh, then traditional societies uh, quickly disappear. But the Hadza have the healthiest gut microbiome of any people. And the health of your microbiome is measured by the diversity of good bacteria that you have. And the diversity of good bacteria you have is directly correlated to eating a wide diversity of plants. And the Hadza eat mostly plants, many, many different types of plants, all wild. Wild plants are exponentially more nutritious than cultivated plants and just a little bit of uh, wild meats. So over here, my staff and I and my friends uh, who come and hang out every morning, um, we go foraging and every morning we have 10 or 12 different types of wild plants that we make into a, a smoothie. And that's inspired by studies of microbiome health of their healthier cultures who are closer to nature. Wow. Well, I was going to ask, as you talk about these cultures, these indigenous cultures, and how much we can learn from them and how much we can learn to live sustainable lives by not destroying the, you know, the planet and the earth, how does that translate into what you're serving people that come to Mia's in the woods? For decades now, I've incorporated foraging. I've incorporated uh, wild plants and animals into our cuisine. The difference at Mia's is that I'm not interested so much in popular plant, a wild plant um, species, for example, like ramps. People go crazy in the spring for ramps, but they're often over-harvested. So uh, in certain forests where people go and over-forest, the, the ramps disappear altogether. Right. So for me, if I'm looking for something that's oniony, I won't use a ramp. I'll use like a, a wild onion that, that I'll find somewhere that's ubiquitous and that people don't really like to eat. Besides that, I'm trying to have the way I cook and my approach to cooking to be a culinary solution to environmental problems. The most destructive force in nature is the human appetite. We humans have eaten away many, many different types of species. So what can we do to aim that human appetite to species that are destructive. Well, let's, uh, instead of eating, for example, factory farmed cows, which are also bad for the environment and its production and also inhumane in so many different ways as well and unhealthy for our bodies. Why don't we eat another red meat like a nutria, you know, that is a herbivore uh, rodent in Louisiana and areas around there. It's like a big rat. 
It's the second biggest rodent, yeah, on the planet. It is a big rat, but the difference is that uh, they're herbivorous, so they've got these buck teeth. And uh, since they eat marsh grasses, they have caused thousands of miles worth of coastal erosion. Yeah. So we should be eating them instead of eating, you know, factory farm burgers, for example. Makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. Mm -hmm. Something else that there's just billions of species of and, you know, looking for a different protein. I mean, we might as well just get it out there. Bugs are forged to, insects are forged to. Yeah. How can we help people overcome the aversion to eating insects? I mean, saw you've never had a grasshopper or anything, <laughs> have you? I ate a grasshopper on live television. I also ate a cicada on live television. And can I say I was pleasantly surprised? <laughs> Yeah. In a good way, not yeah, a bad yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely good to hear. You know, the biggest challenge, food is one of the biggest challenges because we're so set in the ways that we were raised to eat. So we have established tastes, but we also know through psychological exposure studies that uh, people will change their tastes if they're exposed enough times to a certain food. Sometimes it might take seven or eight times but you keep the exposure up. So like if you have a kid, they don't like to eat vegetables. Well, you know, you don't force it on the kid, but keep on serving it, keep on having it on the table. Exposure is uh, a huge part of really evolving the culture of eating, which needs to happen because the biggest pandemic we're facing today is not COVID. It's uh, the pandemic of diet related diseases. Why the average person doesn't see it as a pandemic is because we think that it's a, uh, a natural state of being to die from diet-related diseases. Oh, well, eventually we're going to be getting heart cancer no matter what. Eventually we're going to be getting dementia or Alzheimer's um, no matter what. Eventually we're going to have cancer, but that doesn't necessarily have to be. And that's what we're not really realizing that if we were to change the way we eat, it could be prophylactic against a lot of these diseases. Exposure is super important uh, to society and just exposing other people to each other in a world where violence and retribution between people from uh, different backgrounds and ideologies are a big, big problem. So at Mia's in the Woods, we really want to and we really try to have people from all different walks of life, from people who can afford it, who literally fly in for $500 classes to a bunch of people who come in for free. Why that's important is because different people, it's like in the cafeteria, you know, at school, uh, when groups of kids, black kids will sit there, Hispanic kids will sit there, the white kids and the Asian kids. We want to mix those kids up. That will help um, make us meet our human potential by allowing a diversity of people to, by being exposed to each other, be able to empathize and appreciate and understand each other better. So food is powerful to do that. Yeah. I One of the many reasons why I love doing this show is because I think food and music are kind of unifying uniters oh, yeah. across, across cultures and creeds and ethnicities. And mm -hmm. I wonder if you could tell us what the last menu was at Mia's. I'm trying to envision and connect all the things you're talking about, the, the educational component the foraging component and seeing what it looks like on my plate. So for the last few decades, I've been really creating uh, recipes that are inspired by traditional sushi, but is an improvement to conventional approaches. 
because when sushi first started, and it's not just sushi, the way people used to eat was eating anything around you. And now uh, it's a internationalist cuisine. We don't know where the food's coming from. We don't know what the impact is. Before you knew the farmer or you were the farmer. You know, there's a time when most of us were farmers here in the United States or most of our ancestors in the last 10,000 years were farmers. And today it's a very small percentage of people who are farmers and they monopolize the entire food system. So I've been doing mostly plant-based, not using conventional types of animals, trying to use uh, sustainably certified seafood and uh, invasive species, uh, many of which uh, we forage or catch ourselves. That's awesome. So I had two boats and uh, shell fishing grounds at Branford, uh, where we would go diving for all sorts of different types of seaweeds and tunicates and all sorts of marine coastal creatures uh, that people weren't typically eating. I watched you actually on a, a video earlier, jumping into some very, very cold water and finding clams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. It's truly restorative to, to, to do that and to, to live that way. And uh, that's the way I lived as a kid. I was always outside and always playing. And now there's been over almost a thousand studies, uh, scientific studies done on the impact of nature on physical, cognitive uh, health and just overall uh, well-being. Chef Bun, can anyone be a forager? You know, I, I'm down in Westport mm -hmm. and I know it, it has its roots in being in a big onion farm. Yeah. I tend to kill plants. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. <laughs> in my 46th yeah. and 47th year on this planet, I'm getting better. But can I just go walk in the woods? And So that's the cool thing about it. You don't need to be walking in the woods for it. There's such a thing as urban foraging. And there's so many green spaces that we have around this country. You can live in the Bronx and find, yeah, plenty of places to forage. There's a bit to know. You have to be sure that the soil quality is up to par, meaning like that it's not contaminated with uh, heavy metals, for example. You can't go and forage along a busy roadway or a highway or anything like that. There are a few key things that you have to know, but it's not really that tough. Today, there is uh, fantastic apps that you can download to identify plants. Uh, the one that I have on my phone is Picture This, and uh, I think it's fabulous. And then the other thing is that you have to learn to identify the poisonous plants out there. They're few and far between, and uh, as long as you're not messing around with mushrooms, I think you're pretty fine. I think in the West Coast, there's like hemlock, uh, which is deadly. But uh, around here, the ones that'll get you sick, they're easily identifiable. It's definitely uh, a good idea to learn from somebody who knows how to do it and make sure that if there is a poisonous lookalike, that you're especially, especially careful. You're right. It is pretty fun. You can go in your backyard and find so many fun things, especially around here in Connecticut. I mean, my kids and I go in the backyard. I got garlic chives, we've yeah. got black raspberries, grapes growing. Oh, so man. many fun things you can just find it outside. Wild strawberries. Yeah. And kids are indoors too much. We need to get their blood moving. You know, we need them to be in the fresh air. I love it. So what is your thought, hope, dream for the future of sustainable eating and the, the work that you do? Today, we're more scientific than we used to be. So many of us understand uh, the importance of vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals uh, to our health. But really, that stuff is really complex. Um, I've been studying nutrition for years, and there's so much that I just don't understand. And uh, there's so much that scientists don't understand and don't agree upon. The most important thing when it comes down to food is to really enjoy the process. 
of making the food happen and really enjoy the process of making food that's as healthy as possible. Somebody asked me about like sustainability and bugs. And is that the reason why I eat it? Because it's sustainable. Well, yes, but really every single person around the world that eats bugs, other than us environmentalists in America who didn't grow up eating them, don't eat them because they're good for the environment to eat them. They're eating them because they're delicious. And with the foraging, yes, it's healthier to do, but we shouldn't do it just because it's healthier. We should do it because it brings us happiness. And it's part of making a healthy meal for ourselves that we need to take care of so that we can also take care of other people with the healthy food that we make too. That was Chef Bun Lai. We spoke with him in September. If you want to learn more about Bun's philosophy and the evolution of Mia's in the Woods, watch the beautiful short documentary film about Bun's journey. It's called Little Fish. It came out in November, and you can find it on newyorker.com. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyenagan and Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening, everybody. Not just to this episode, but all year long. See you next week. 